I mean, it's, it's just so strange, isn't it? Because I look back and I'm like, if none of that had happened, even if the very, very dark and devastating things that happened on that day, if they hadn't have happened, would I have then, you know, a few weeks later been in that office meeting people who went on to be my, you know, my employers and my, my colleagues for many years after that? I don't know. And it's not to say I'm thankful for, for all that stuff going on, but I certainly think that my drive and my thirst and my appetite for work, partially it was obviously passion for what I did, but it was also necessity because I knew that there wasn't anyone around to bail me out. Like I, I looked at the background that I came from and I was like, I, I don't want this for myself. Welcome back to Daddy Issues podcast with Harrod George Carey. Daddy Issues is a podcast exploring fatherlessness, but more specifically, fatherlessness in successful people. I want to prove that regardless of whatever daddy issues you think you have, you can achieve anything you put your mind to. Fatherlessness affects so many of us, so it's time to start listening to each other's stories and opening up this conversation as one that needs to be recognised, heard and confronted. If you like what you hear, please do feel free to rate, review and subscribe, because not only do we love hearing all your feedback, but it gets the podcast to more ears. And the more ears, the merrier. So thank you so much. I'm going to let you get on with the episode now. And I hope you have a wonderful listen. I'm thrilled to announce that Daddy Issues Podcast and Oni have collaborated. So Oni is a community-first brand providing a range of organic period products designed to help you manage your entire cycle. So I say this having learnt startlingly recently how we who do have a uterus know so little about our cycle and were taught so little about our cycle throughout our education. Our menstrual cycle, not to go too into detail, really does affect us every single day differently. I was so excited to come across Oni because they're a platform who really understand this and have therefore created products in order to help us function as best we can for every day and not just the days where we are experiencing our monthly bleed. Only period products are all 100% organic cotton, meaning that you don't have to worry about any nasty chemicals going places where they shouldn't. But being somebody who suffers badly from cramps and PMS and just general hormonal changes throughout the month, the main excitement for me is the selection of vegan CBD oils and medicinal concoctions that they sell from their site, which work together to combat cramps, muscle spasms, and for the days where your hormones feel a bit off kilter. To top all of this off and to make it wonderfully Gen Z, they're also vegan, cruelty-free and are working to un-F-U-C-K the planet with every single box that you'll be sent in the post. On the show notes of this episode, you will find a link that leads you to be able to claim your first free box on only period products as well as some other exciting and life-changing hormonal delights. In today's episode, I am speaking to Billy J.D. Porter. Billy is a journalist and filmmaker from London who has travelled the world reporting and authoring documentaries for the likes of the BBC, Channel 4 and Vice since a very young age in her teens. 
As a writer, she contributes to a number of worldwide publications covering music, politics and everything in between. Billy currently lives in Los Angeles where she is working on her debut feature documentary. I am totally obsessed with the way that Billy journals her thoughts and her opinions out into the ether through both her writing and her documentary style. And I actually, as a teenager and the same age as Billy, used to watch with awe and green-eyed envy to all of the documentaries she used to make, covering all these amazing topics and speaking to so many interesting people and really investigating important subject matters that I am... yeah, I just used to think it was really, really cool. And then I ended up meeting her in Los Angeles and that's how this podcast came about. So hooray to serendipity. But I just cannot wait for you to listen to this episode because Billy is just amazing and so articulate. She just has a way of speaking so, so honestly and poignantly and directly I actually had a really gushy moment to Billy at the end of our episode, which I took out because it cringed me out. But I was just like, you are just incredible to have come through and be the woman that she is today is just to me really amazing. And so, yeah, that's what I kind of gushly told her. And she kind of thought, okay, (laughs) relaxing, Harrod. But anyway, um, thank you so, so, so much for tuning in to Daddy Issues podcast. I'm so excited for you to hear this episode. You will fall in love with Billy J.D. Porter. If you just want to sort of set the scene and tell us where you grew up and your sort of family dynamic. So, I mean, I grew up in pretty central London. I'm an only child. We moved to Islington, which is like a a lovely area of of London. Um, And I mean, it was strange. I'm the only child of two now recovered or recovering heroin addicts. Um, And obviously when, when you're a young child, you you don't know what's going on. And I think that everyone has this sort of moment where, regardless if you come from a background with addiction or substance abuse, everyone has that moment when they realise that their family is unique. You know, when you start to sort of visit other people's houses or see how other families operate. But yeah, I mean, there were various things that happened when I was young that now I can kind of look back on and and be pretty horrified by but at the time it was normal to me and I accepted it as such. It wasn't until I was a bit older that the sort of signs presented themselves a bit more um, in a bit more of a pronounced way. It's it's difficult to talk about. Going back to what you were saying about how there were some things that obviously at the time it was your normal mm-hmm. um but looking back actually they were quite horrifying experiences yeah do you mind sharing a little bit more about what those could have been or what that was sure I mean like I it's funny because one of the things that has been a real area of like 
upset and contention between my family and I now is how we all remember the past differently. We've obviously all got slightly different accounts, but we were we were all experiencing it from a very different way. I was experiencing it as a young child, you know, vulnerable and, and needing to be taken care of. And they were experiencing it um, while often like hi you know and so it's like who who's whose account is more trustworthy um well not more trustworthy I guess it's just it's more that we all have our different realities and I think there are certain things that they look back mm. on and might think yeah that was that was shitty but for me I'm like no that was harrowing um but mm. one of my early memories that's really stuck out is that is my mum was out somewhere and she would normally get me ready for nursery and my dad was getting me ready for nursery this morning and he was just a bit out of it and I didn't realize that's what was going on at the time but he'd basically put me in some tights and a t-shirt but I didn't have like a skirt or a dress on or any shorts or anything like over the tights and I remember kind of saying to him, like, at the time, like, no, I need to, like, I'm not fully clothed. <laughs> and I th- I mean, they were probably, like, you know, like, woolen tights. And I was, like, yeah, you know, like, chubby little tight. toddler or whatever. And he was, like, this is fine. But I remember sort of getting to nursery and then putting, you know, something on me from lost property. And then my mum coming back and being, like, what the fuck are you wearing type thing. <laughs> There's like really subtle things that it's funny, but at the time I was so kind of aware that something was amiss, but I couldn't really get through to him. It was that like barrier in in, in communication because he was, you know, not sober. Um, And then, you know, there were far more sort of like shocking things. Like I unfortunately, when I was very, very young, had seen my father like shooting up which obviously I had no awareness as a, as a five or six year old girl, like what, what was going on. I didn't know what the paraphernalia was. I didn't, you know, mm. who's seen a syringe at age, age five or six. I can't remember what elaborate story was told to me at the time, but I accepted it, you know, because mm-hmm. to me it was, uh, dad's got something in his arm and he's sleepy it looks sleepy and mm. you know you're at an age where you believe in like fairies and santa and pretty much anything anyone tells you so i accepted whatever i was told i don't remember exactly what it was um but yeah and you know there there were evenings where my parents would not collect me from school and it was sort of pre-mobile phones and so i have really really sort of sad and and difficult memories about that of sort of being the last person in the playground as it's getting dark and a teacher being like where are your mum and dad you know Mm -hmm. and it's that's the sort of thing that I kind of will have tried to approach my parents and they'll be like that only happened a few times and I'm like that's too many times that's too many times for that to have happened for you not to collect your like child from school but um (laughs) Yeah, and I mean, as I got older, there were various other things that happened. And, and, you know, as my awareness of the situation increased, my relationship and the whole dynamic changed a lot. You know, I was a lot less, I was home a lot less, you know, and I, and, and our relationship kind of broke down and 
in various ways. Um, and there was just so much lying, you know, I think that that was the main thing that, that tore us apart in many ways is that I can completely understand from the point of view of two parents desperately guilty and very, very much trying to do what they believe will protect their daughter. Um, they decided for a long time to hide from me what was going on, but that was mm -hmm. so confusing because I could tell that things weren't right and I could tell that, you know, there was there was drug use going on and there would be people at my school even sort of saying, like, your dad's a crackhead or something. And I'd be like, no! Um, <laughs> oh, wait, yeah. <laughs> but when, so, because it's, I mean, we're laughing about it now, but actually it's, it's like, it is sort of incredibly traumatic especially for a child to have to sort of navigate that with the rest of the world who are also coming in with their opinions mm -hmm. I can imagine and but with the when you realize because as we all know children live in their sort of bubble of what they think is like normal until as you say you start getting your own mind and realizing and maybe going to other people's houses oh my family's a bit different to this mm -hmm. um do you remember that drop when you were like, oh, my parents take drugs and that's a bad thing? I mean, it's a lot of it's quite fuzzy, but there was, um, I think that I must have been 11 or 12 and there was just so much going on that didn't make sense. You know, there would be people in and out of our house at all hours, you know, I, I, could tell that my dad was sort of I don't know there, there, there are lots of unexplained things going on and they decided to tell me that my dad had formerly had a drug problem um but but sort of told it to me as, a, as though it was past tense um mm -hmm. and then it, it, it continued to go on on and off you know throughout but that was the story that they stuck to uh, in actual fact, obviously, my mother was was using the entire time, and and often that. I mean, it's it's I'm I'm I don't want to say gaslighting because it obviously they weren't trying intentionally to make me feel crazy, but I think that they'd thought that you know, if I knew the truth, that both of them were kind of gripped by this, that mm. that would be you know more isolating. Um, but I, I believe that that was a mistake because I could obviously tell that my mother's behavior and my mother's physical appearance and just her general demeanor as it got as bad as it eventually did, um, to be consistently told everything's normal was a huge head fuck, you know, but what, what eventually ended up happening was that I was the person who had to stage an intervention on my mother, um, mm -hmm to get her off drugs and this was long after I'd left home and my my father sort of I had to I was visiting my dad in hospital I can't remember why he was there at that point which is pretty depressing <laughs> but um I think maybe he'd gotten into a fight or something or I don't know I can't remember 
I can't remember what happened, nor what I was told, and they might be two different things. But I was um, visiting my father in hospital, and he basically was like to me, look, like, your mum is in a really bad way, and I don't know what to do. Um, so I, I, I had to sort of figure that out. I had to find a local, you know, recovery centre and arrange this meeting and, you know, ambush her essentially which I know is probably one of the most awful things that she's ever had to go through but thank god it happened and speaking of how your mum got worse or at least you could see a change of her behavior probably heightened by the fact that you were getting older and more aware yourself Mm -hmm. but were your dad and mum were they addicts together from since you were a child or was your dad an addict first and then your mum sort of joined or how did that work and then I guess did it sort of start to deteriorate because it was just continuing for so long Mm. and the addiction was getting worse well my my father has struggled with um heroin since he was a teenager and Mm. He and my mother met. They were both actors. Um, They went to different drama schools but had mutual friends. Um, I think that throughout drama school, as far as I am aware, um, my dad was clean and he did very well and he was very successful, like West End actor, for a while. And he and my mother were on a daytime soap together, which is, like, hilarious and, and very cute. And... They fell madly in love and went on a trip to India, I believe, and sort of, I don't know, probably like smoked opium in India and and it seemed relatively harmless at the time. Um, Mm. But eventually, via my dad, my mother became sort of addicted to heroin. And I think as you progress with heroin you end up using crack and I don't think it you know it's it's in order to be able to come up and come down and and be quote unquote functioning they sort of go hand in hand um but yeah I think that there would probably be periods where one of them was using and the other wasn't periods where they were both using and periods where they both weren't using and again these are the sort of things that we look back on and it's very difficult to map out a timeline of everything that happened and I I very much feel like as a as a tool to kind of allow them to live with what they've done it's often minimized in their heads what happened whereas the rest of you know, family and and friends and people around it. Um, It feels like it was pretty constant. The chaos was certainly pretty constant living inside it, whether or not they were, you know, momentarily sober or not. I'm sure you can imagine that someone coming off heroin isn't necessarily (laughs) a better person to be around than someone on heroin. Um, Yeah. But yeah, it's been it's been really sad, and like I remember, you know, I was I was approached by, I was I was contacted by 
a person who used to sort of take care of me when I when I was much younger, a friend of my parents, and they'd said, you know, we didn't know whether or not to approach authorities. We didn't know if he'd be better off in care. And that's such a sort of devastating thing to hear because, and, and, and I say this to everyone, like in so many ways, I believe that I have been really lucky with my parents. And I would go to friends' houses and often be quite shocked by how parents weren't engaged with, with their kids. Because when my parents were on, they were the best parents in the world and they were definitely the people who sparked my interest in reading and writing and everything creative. And, you know, my mother would like, she listened to amazing music and like dressed really well and had a really interesting life and just kind of, my parents, I was inspired by them and they they always sort of spoke to me as an equal um, and didn't really sort of, patronize me in in the way that I think lots of parents do their kids obviously in mean, meaning the best but like I yeah I mean I could sit and talk to my parents about a bunch of stuff and they were really open and and articulate and clever and and so it's not in many ways I would have rathered that than a very sort of buttoned up um upbringing with people who I felt very alienated from because obviously their addictions and the chaos and the lies and when it was really bad that did drive a wedge between us but when when things were good we were quite a unique family like very very close-knit and just obsessed with one another you know I worshipped my parents in many ways and so I think that it was this very like so so heightened you know I had so much so much love for them and such a kind of um respect for them that when when they let me down and disappointed me and actually kind of put me in positions where I wasn't safe physically or emotionally it hurt even more because it was such a close visceral bond between us and because it was such a contrast from what I guess you'd felt what felt like sort of seconds before absolutely yeah yeah and as an only child and dealing with all of this essentially on your own did you have anyone to talk to was there anyone that you could share your frustrations experiences highs lows was there someone to talk to I mean sadly no I I for a long time, I was kind of expected to, and it, it it wasn't, I don't want to say expected to keep secrets because it wasn't like my parents would be like, don't tell anyone that this happened. But like, I, <laughs> I don't know. I, I remember sort of arriving to my grandparents' house very late and hearing my father weave these like, you know, elaborate excuses and being like, that's not what happened. Like you were just meeting some guy or, you know what I mean? Just like being really like, oh, okay. I'm sort of now part of this lie. Again, mm. they, they, none of it was meant with malice, but I was sort of like dragged into their, um, wanting to keep up appearances to, to the rest of the world. But 
I'm very, very close with my cousin. She's also an only child and we're the same age. Um, and there came a point where I think that she, I remember she was over at our house once and the police or the ambulance arrived at the house something to do with my dad he'd either been taken ill or something weird had happened and she says that she remembers really vividly me sort of running down and trying to control the situation and then coming up and being like not again and I was like I said not again and she was like yeah so clearly the police had been over or 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 paramedics or something that had been happening frequently and I, you know, I didn't remember that. She told me that. Um, and so she's been privy to a lot of the kind of more recent stuff as it's unfolded. But no, when I was younger, I really, really didn't have much of a support network. And I think it's something that I've I've reflected on a lot because I remember, you know, stupid, very, very subpar, like, what was it called? PSHE lessons, personal, phys- do, do you remember <laughs> yeah. that? It was like the one where you did yeah. like sex education and drugs. And they would consistently <laughs> kind of have these things that were like, don't take drugs and don't have sex, but, or, you know, use a condom, whatever. <laughs> but like, there was never the kind of what to do if someone in your household is abusing mm. drugs. Or if someone in your household is sexually abusing you, you know, it's like, mm. it, obviously I never, never experienced that at all. But I, I remember sort of like when I left school, looking back and being like, I felt like in those lessons, there was something, you know, you're talking to a bunch of people, especially in inner city London. I went to like a fucking terrible school. At least it was terrible when I was there. Um, and thinking there must be so many people in this classroom who do go home and they have a drunk father or do go home and there's something going on that that Mm -hmm. they need help with yet we're just being told like don't smoke or don't don't do whatever and it's kind of like I think that's a real gap um definitely do you know what's so interesting I was actually going to ask you about this and maybe I'm sort of fast forwarding a bit but how I think in your work and the things that you focus on and write about and give voice to, uh, I think do tend to be voices which are less heard and stories that essentially need to be told because perhaps they live more in the cracks of society. And I think this is a huge reflection on potentially your own experiences of having that that a voice and a really important kind of story to 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 tell when you were younger and not necessarily having that Mm. support network in order to to be able to say it and I don't necessarily think that's just the reason why you do the work that you do but I thought maybe that that could be a link to why you have gone down that path of really platforming people and stories that need to be told and probably less so than they normally should and do if that makes sense yeah totally I mean I I think like I've I've never made a very sort of pronounced link in in my head like that, but I yeah I I definitely agree that that probably is a factor of it. I think it's funny actually. I, I interviewed um, my friend's mother is a um, psychotherapist, and she works a lot with both addicts and children of of addicts, and so I was really interested mm. to sort of interview her. 
And she'd said that, you know, young people who grow up in a household where um, either one or both of the parents maybe aren't as present as, as caregivers as they might in a more, you know, quote unquote, traditional or conventional household, they're very observant and they're sort of looking for danger and like looking around to to piece together what's going on, to, to fend for themselves. And so she was saying like it, <clears throat> it makes perfect sense that you've gone on to be an investigative journalist or that you're, uh, you know, someone who's very observant or that your work relies on, on reading people and reading subtleties because without knowing it as a child, you were basically programmed to do that. Um, and she told me so much interesting stuff as well, you know, that, yeah, if 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 I were to have a, a scan of my brain, and sh- I'm sure the same as you as well, that our brains, people who have, have suffered early childhood trauma or trauma in any way, your brain is different. It's wired mm. differently. And that was so interesting to me, kind of just to realize that, you know, people have these, I think in this day and age as well, we're very, people will throw around words like, oh, that's so triggering or that, you know, that's so traumatizing it's like no actually like that's a chemical thing in your brain and like a trigger will be very different for one person versus another um it's actually fascinating you're saying this because I'm reading a book which you've probably heard of because I feel like it's now super well known but the body keeps the score and in it I've just read a chapter about I can't remember the guy who's written it but Anyway, he's amazing and he's this uh, maybe Norwegian psych- psychiatrist mm-hmm. who then um, did his practice in, in America. And anyway, in it is it shows these different parts of the brain. I was reading it last night. Wow. And it's how when you do suffer from trauma, and this, again, I think speaking of like how we work and function in the world, but the right side of your brain, I can't remember what that, maybe the cortex or something. But so when you experience trauma as a young child, often the left side, which is the rational, logical side or whatever it is, that part gets slightly diminished and fogged mm-hmm. and a bit confused. And the creative side actually gets expanded. And it's that emotional thing, which if you think about musicians, actors, da, 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 I don't know, for me, that made so much sense. Totally. Like storytellers and like why people go into what they do. And it is so, in- I was like, oh my gosh, that's literally how my brain has developed. So am I an actress because I love acting and I can act? Or am I an actress because I suffered childhood trauma? I don't know. <laughs> Going back to what you were saying about your work, because you started working so young mm. and that in itself is incredible considering as you were saying the chaos that your environment was to then find that structure and just to find that drive at such a young age when everyone else was probably not thinking of work <laughs> but I also thought the investigative journalism that you did go into could have been a subconscious thing with both your parents being storytellers as well I did well it's funny because I remember my parents were so sort of supportive when I was growing up and me you know reading writing and doing creative stuff and they were they were pretty much like to me do anything you want be whatever you like but don't be an actor because I think (laughs) that they were just sort of like you know being an actor is is a is a profession where and I mean there are many many creative industries like this but there is no real necessarily like correlation between your your talent and your success you know there's just kind of like so many people who will go their entire lives potentially you know 
being able to give the most incredible performances and they will never, never be able to. Um, Mm. And I think for my parents, you know, they, they threw away careers that could have been pretty fucking epic. I think, you know, from what I've seen, the, the, they were, they were very talented people, but I don't know. I think that like in terms of me throwing myself into my work, like, it was definitely a form of escapism when I was still working, when I was living at home. And then I left home very young because it it did reach a stage of kind of not being safe, really. Um, I'd planned to go to sixth form and to university and I wanted to study English literature and I'd gotten into the sixth form that I wanted to go to and I was you know not far off from 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 doing that and then that summer there was kind of a big episode one day where both of my parents they'd apparently taken like a bad batch of heroin which can be you know completely fucking fatally dangerous but they were just completely out of it and it's by far probably the most terrifying day of my life that happened because and and they barely remember it but they were neither of them recognized me they were being which they you know really never were quite physically threatening towards me that there were at points didn't seem to recognize one another and it was just terrifying you know I remember my dad like tumbling down the stairs and then sort of again at a certain point in the day police arriving and they were looking for him and and didn't know where he was and and my mum was not making any sense and it was I just went into autopilot I had no idea what was going on I just turned 16 years old I knew obviously that they were on drugs but I was I had no idea what the fuck was going on and at a certain point I think they'd both sort of left the house. I had no idea where either of them were and I just packed a suitcase and left. And that was when I left. Um, And I decided very shortly after that that I wasn't going to go to school. And um, I'd interviewed this. I was sort of freelance writing throughout, you know, school and doing my GCSEs often lying to people about how old I was when I was getting these commissions. But I'd met this really, really wonderful woman who basically is responsible for, you know, my entire career, really, when I look back at it. But um, she was the PR for a couple of bands that I was interviewing at this festival. And she'd spoken to me about how she had gone to university, I think, to study like neuroscience or something. And then ended up working in the music industry. And she was just really funny, like warm lady. And I called her up, probably sounded like completely frantic and, and manic. But I was like, listen, I don't think I'm going to go to school. I think it might be a mistake. And like, I I, I want to meet up. And <clears throat> she was like, I can't really pay you very much, but you could intern for me and I can get you like a travel card and I can pay you this much a week. I can't remember how much it was, but um, she was based is this, in. Is this you leaving 
the house and sort of calling her oh I don't think it wasn't it wasn't that immediate it probably was like a few days later (laughs) I left the house and moved in with um my boyfriend at the time which was a bit of a mistake in in Croydon but I mean (laughs) so lovely of him to to have me but that was probably led to the breakdown of, of the relationship eventually but um so yeah no I was like wheeling this suitcase to South London just completely like what the fuck is going on I didn't hear from my parents for quite some time they mm-hmm. didn't they didn't reach out I mean I, I don't know how long it took for the sort of fog to subside from from whatever they'd mm-hmm. taken but um yeah so I I left and then reached out to this woman and she was based in the basement of the first vice office, which was like a very sort of like funny little uh, place in, in Shoreditch and Leonard street. And the basement had a couple of different companies there, including hers. So I was just immediately in this environment and around a bunch of other journalists. And, and that was kind of how I got introduced to, to Vice and lots of the people that I went on to work with. So it was all this kind of like, you know, born out of this extremely, extremely hurtful and quite dangerous situation. I had to um, quickly put a plan into place. Um, and I mean, it's, it's just so strange, isn't it? Because I look back and I'm like, if, if, if none of that had happened, even if, even if the, the very, very dark and devastating things that happened on that day, if they hadn't have happened, would I have then, you know, a few weeks later been in that office meeting people who went on to be my, you know, my employers and my, my colleagues for many years after that? I don't know. And it's not to say I'm thankful for, for all that stuff going on, but um, <laughs> I certainly think that my my drive and my thirst and my appetite for work, partially it was it was obviously passion for what I did, but it was also necessity because I knew that, I, that there wasn't anyone around to bail me out. There wasn't going to be, like I, I looked at the background that I came from and I was like, I, I don't want this for myself. Like, I want a job. I, I'd sat, you know, my parents for as long as I can remember really have, have been um, signing on. And I looked at that life of, of you know, sitting indoors, often not drawing the curtains for days at a time. And like, I, I didn't want that. I wanted to go out and do something. There's so much I want to ask you about that you've touched on. You said that you first started writing commissions when you were at school. Yeah. Where was that born from? Sometimes me reaching out to magazines. Um, but I, I had this experience where I'd go to these, like, concerts that were for um, for kids, like sort of underage parties. And I remember I went to one with a bunch of friends it was like a new year's eve part i mean and we'd find this shit on myspace you know like it was very sort of unofficial but we found this um this party that was going on on new year's eve in some like abandoned office block or something and there was meant to be a bunch of bands and djs playing and so we arrived we were like 14 i mean i don't know what you're allowed to put in this but we arrived like poised ready for the party 
popped in ecstasy and then like sort of high out of our minds this party gets shut down and so we're like in the middle of king's cross like eyes like spaceships being like what the fuck do we do now like what and i remember the tickets had cost 10 pounds and at the time that was like 10 pounds you know that's like fucking come on and I remember at the time, like, running around trying to find the organizer of this party, being like, we want a refund, and we, you know, blah, blah, blah. And, <laughs> with uh, your space eyes. Like. Yeah, <laughs> like, high as a kite. <laughs> and, um, and then a few days later, wrote this really, really, like, arsy message to the promoter, being like, you know, I couldn't help but notice that there was only one fire exit at the place and there wasn't enough drinking water and there's loads of teenagers <laughs> on drugs and, like, we want our money back. You know, like, real fucking, like, twat piece of work. But, you know, it was arguably, you know, the most important night of the year and we were all very excited about it. We wound up at some, I don't know, house party in Wood Green and spent the countdown, like, on the street in Houston. Like, we felt hard done by <laughs> Yeah. And so I, I messaged this guy and he was like, look, I'll, I'll give you and your friends a refund. And then I ended up at another party that he was doing and sort of like introduced myself. I was like, I was the person that wrote that. And he was like, how, how old are you? I was like 14. <laughs> um, and I ended up going on to work for this guy. I think he was like, who is this weird, oh like sort of mouthy teenager? <laughs> and I started working for him, booking the acts at, at these parties and so I was basically like age 14 age 14 so I was just like teenage promoter like on the phone to these managers on my lunch break like you know (laughs) cutting deals (laughs) but it was it was for like sort of very small amounts of money at like and we'd get matinee licenses for these little bars and venues and it was so fun and we'd like DJ and it was it was all like ridiculous and and very fun and then he basically went on to start a website um like a music blog essentially and because we had access to all of these bands it was pretty much like we could just go and interview them and we had the the relationships mm-hmm. there already so i would go and you know sometimes we'd do film stuff but a lot of written i mean i'm sure it's terrible if i were to be able to dig out any of it now like <laughs> But um, I remember, like, running from, like, a GCSE exam to go to interview a band, like, having a change of clothes in in my rucksack and sort of running out of the exam hall and being like, I finished, I finished, sir, you know, to go and, like, interview some fucking DJ or something. Oh, my God. That's so cool. You were living such – did you – did was sort of – because I'm guessing your friends knew that you had this kind of double life of – but was there – did you realise that you were sort of – I don't know, you'd living this kind of quite dreamy life for a sort of 15-year-old running to interview bands and like get have some alcohol and sort of Yeah. I don't know. It was I mean how was that taken by like your peers? I think my my friends at school didn't really give a shit. You know, like I wasn't I wasn't very popular at school. Um not in a way that I was like I was the loner or whatever, but I wasn't I wasn't super kind of invested in in my school life like I it's it's sad because I think that you know one of the incredible things about my school is that it was so diverse and Mm. it 
like there was so much about like different cultures and backgrounds that I sort of unknowingly like soaked up being there. Um, But at the time I was more sort of, the school had a terrible fucking reputation, basically. Let's put it that way. It was called EGA and the nickname for it was every girl available. Uh, And so it was just like the, the like laughing stock of Islington in terms of schools. And like, I remember when we got to year 10 and we had our like, lunch privileges that we could leave the school site and go out we were banned from everywhere it's like no EGA girls were allowed in like you know Marks and Spencers or whatever because they just like shoplifting and fighting on the street it was like chaos (laughs) um and I remember like there was like this big like huge thing because a girl had thrown a bit of metal at someone's head on Chapel Market and they just, I mean, you had these, like, you know, reputation for being these, like, very, very poorly behaved girls. It was a girls' school, which mm. is also, like, hilarious. But really, I don't know. It was this sort of environment where, I don't know, like, someone, like, once tried to stab one of our teachers and we had supply teachers all the time. And it was, like, you know, you'd get these occasional jewels in in the middle of it, like, teachers who really connected with you but for the most part a lot of my school life felt like complete sort of chaos so I had this chaotic Mm -hmm. home life this chaotic school life and then this chaotic sort of like life outside of it where I was like yeah um pretending to be much older than I was with that life outside so it was only your boss who probably knew your real age yeah yeah but then with that life outside of it you sort of mentioned it was a escapism was that which I totally was gonna even sort of ask myself because that to me makes total sense but was there also I'm sure like a level of even though it was chaotic and you know completely like you were living way beyond your years at like a really young age Mm -hmm. um at least that's what it feels like to me because I was I think I was so sheltered at right. that time so you were living such a different lifestyle which I also think as a 14 year old I think at least that's living way beyond kind of like you grew up very very quickly yeah and seemed to kind of from what it sounds like you seem to sort of even the guy being like you're 14 like even the way that you wrote that email like you you had this air of confidence that I think a 14 year old doesn't usually have or at least a savviness maybe rather than a confidence like a sort of knowing of the world yeah and that could have that could have come from sort of psychiatrists saying or psychotherapists saying this kind of watching like the sort of observing of people and how to navigate and maybe being that caregiver which I think definitely I can imagine grows you up um but with that did also this life outside did that feel something that you could also control because that was yours so you could totally yeah as much as it was chaotic it was actually the sort of solace of control maybe for you outside of this double chaos that you didn't have control of maybe yeah it was it was mine you know and it was these it you can't choose your family you can't choose necessarily your classmates but I had this world where it was like I could 
I don't know. Yeah, I was I was creating creating this life for myself from from a really young age, and like, you know, we were doing like a bunch of press at that time already, like doing interviews for like days in the Sunday Times when we were like 14, 15 about about the company that we were doing and about these underage shows that we we're putting on. So it was like I was already like being given a platform to talk at that age. And so I think that forming opinions and like really thinking about the way I felt about the world and what I wanted to do with my career, like it all sort of happened very organically but yeah it felt really special and magical and I think that like I was so lucky I mean to to live my experience obviously living in a city like London would be so different to someone who who grew up around addiction who lived in a more rural area because it's not like they could have been like oh and then I dipped my toes in music promotion or whatever like (laughs) I think that I'm so lucky to have been um, in a city where there's so much inspiration and so much going on. And that's, I mean, I know this is not sort of like part of the the topics that you necessarily explore in this, but like, that's one of the things that makes me so upset about what London and what a lot of major cities have kind of become with all of these, like, I mean, especially now fucking in the, the apocalypse that we're living through, but you know, the, the death of these independent music venues and the death of like, so much so much money and funding being pulled from the arts and 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 all of this stuff it's like it's different now like I don't think you see these fucking like matinee shows and kids running around on pro plus or you know illegal warehouse (laughs) raves happening right now it's um it's a shame it is a shame (laughs) it really is but there are actually quite a lot of illegal raves going on I think all right are you what are you I got a text message the other I got a text message the other day from an ex-podcast guest saying um do you know any illegal rapes going on at the moment and I was like lol pandemic raves (laughs) damn there's going on so so much more I want to cover so obviously you started working for this for this lady who mm-hmm. gave you an internship. Yeah. The PR lady who then sort of took you under her wing. You met all these incredible people at Vice or at least people who could open doors for you. And sure. also you had this like insane body of work that happened even before that. As a journalist, I read that you had heard a few things, sort of sweeping comments being said about working class people yeah. on the doll and things that you suddenly realized you kind of cringed even hearing people say this but also wanted to sort of hide that part of you but also having potentially learned that chameleon vibe from your mum and the sort of life that she came from I'd love to just quickly go into that because I found that really interesting and something important maybe to share sure I mean, I think like, so yeah, my, my mother grew up in Hull, um, which is you know, a city that's the butt of a lot of jokes, you know, I think before it was city of culture, especially it would consistently come up on these lists of like worst places to live in the world, Hull would come up, which is <laughs> <Yeah>. just absurd. <laughs> um, but yeah, so she grew up in a very sort of working class household and then came to London you know following her dreams to 
become an actress and being very brave and one of the only I think yeah she was one of four um children and I think the only person who went into further education and uh when she got to drama school she was basically told that she wouldn't get any parts unless she lost her accent she had a really thick northern accent and so she was given like elocution lessons essentially and like told that she should speak um queen's english which is why i sound like this um <laughs> did is it because she then said to you that that you needed to speak like that was that something that she stressed not, or not at all i mean like i i think that it was just something that stuck like it became mm. something that they were like you should lose that accent for your auditions and for your roles and eventually she just lost her northern accent and so i grew up with it and my dad's speaks like this too but I think Mm. that the whole notion of like and again these are the things that you don't realize until you're a bit older but we'd go back to Hull to visit our family and I'd be like sorry why don't you sound like them but I didn't understand the connotations of that like the world judges you for that actually Mm. what you sound Mm. like less so now thank god but um but yeah and then I think that obviously the media as a whole is, I mean, it's just one of the least diverse industries there is. And um, I mean, I, I remember I did a keynote speech at York University recently about this, but I can't remember the statistics off the top of my head. But the amount of like Oxbridge educated people in, in journalism or working at the BBC, like it's shocking. It's like a majority. Um, yeah. And so I was this person who had left school, left a pretty like gnarly school at age 16. And <laughs> I felt like I could hold my own. I was articulate, but I certainly wasn't fucking book smart. You know, I I often felt like I didn't really have the right to participate in certain conversations. And I certainly couldn't laugh along when people were making jokes about like uni life or whatever, because I hadn't had that. Um And so I think that I I did gradually become more aware of my background and a bit sort of self-conscious about it. And then also, you know, so many people, it's ironic, right? Because as the world now knows, everyone who works at fucking Vice is pretty much like cokehead alcoholic, myself included when I was working there. (laughs) Yet, yet there still was this snobbery. And I think that the world over there's like a snobbery about certain drugs and certain lifestyles so for us you know swanning around um taking whatever doing blow midweek we felt like (laughs) that was acceptable but you know certain other drugs and in certain other environments less so our parents generation I've got enough friends whose parents were also in London during this time who had to go to rehab for heroin addiction I think it was just such a normalized drug like it was something that was the scary heroin that we speak of now you didn't associate it necessarily with ruining your life so yeah it is really interesting to sort of for us for our generation to look back and think oh my god heroin is so scary because that's how it's now been painted but for us we think coke is like quite a normal thing to have do you know what I mean like it's yeah and, and that's obviously so dangerous, but like, I, I think that 
it's just it's language that I mean I was even guilty of but like I mean I then I said it earlier but growing up in environments where people will you know say like smackhead or crackhead you know and it has mm-hmm. such sort of such weight to it and it's so horrible like just horrible sounding um yeah and yeah I think just sort of like sweeping and again highly ironic because everyone in in my my circle in the media industry definitely sort of had questionable relationships with substances but being able to sort of you know Look down your nose at people who are struggling. Um, I felt that. I, I did kind of feel like I was, well, I, I was in a minority there. I wasn't someone who went to private school. I was someone who grew up often, you know, there were times where bailiffs would be knocking at our door or times when the electricity would run out. Obviously, my parents were funding a, a drug addiction with not much money. So... I I couldn't relate to a lot of my peers. And I still I still feel that obviously honestly, you know, it's not mm. like I in, in life I think that especially this age now I have friends who are like their parents are helping them put down payments on a house or their parents are mm. I don't know be it financially or emotionally they're present and supportive as people are going through the your adult life and for me that obviously doesn't exist um and so I think that it it's not something that's going to disappear as I get older this is still an industry that favors people who have money sadly and I think that it's it's obviously that sucks because you need wouldn't it be more interesting if you had more voices like Mm. you know more stories and and more kind of like real real Mm. exactly yeah like an actual representation of what the country is yeah totally just but speaking of drugs and substances and sort of alcohol and you being introduced quite young because of obviously the work that you were doing at such a young age Mm -hmm. what was your relationship to alcohol growing up and how do you think your parents relationship to their addiction may or may not have affected that relationship that you then had with substances. Yeah. I mean, I think like my, I think I I do have a tricky relationship with, with substances. Um, And that's not to say, I mean, like I, I, these days I don't drink or do drugs very much at all, but I still would, maintain that I have a tricky relationship with substances I think that I started drinking very young I was in industries where both excessive alcohol and drug consumption was very normalized so between the music industry and the media industry which I straddled for years like both of those environments are very you know heavy yeah yeah. And it it scared me, I think, because I started reading all this stuff about whether or not addiction is genetic and um, how much more likely people who grow up around substance abuse are to go on and form issues themselves. And so I 
decided one year that I was going to take a year off alcohol. And I knew that I intended to go back and I wasn't in a 12 step program. It was more a sort of like personal test uh, to, to explore my relationship with alcohol. And it was certainly like eye opening because it was fucking difficult. And I, you know, I wrote this piece, which I think you mentioned earlier for Elle at the time. And I was just suddenly confronted with all of this stuff that I hadn't dealt with, you know, and you don't have that social lubrication and you don't have that immediate stress relief at all. It's just, you know, every thought that kind of floats by in your head, you're there and you have to confront it and kind of have some personal resolve. Um, but I think it's, it's something that I, I do, I think about often and and try to keep in check because the idea of sort of oblivion and, and avoidance and self-destruction, I've watched the two people who are supposed to take care of me take that path, you know, um, and also lots of friends of mine. I've lost so many friends to, you know, sadly to, to drugs. Um, and that's just a reality when you kind of are in this world, isn't it? Uh, but <clears throat> it's something to keep in check for sure. Um, I was, I, I mean, it, this is kind of like, I was, uh, I was going to bring this up earlier, but I think that something that I would definitely, definitely recommend to people who have grown up around addiction is, um, the Al-Anon program, which isn't Alcoholics Anonymous, it's different. It's for friends and family of addicts, but it's modelled on a on a twelve step model. Um, oh, wow! So I I dip in and out of that uh, program pretty regularly, and I think that it not only helps sort of contextualise what I've been through and and the struggle of being the the daughter of two addicts, but it makes me ask questions about my own relationship with, with alcohol and, and substances, but I don't know. It's tricky, especially in fucking, you know, 2020 to, to keep a handle on what you're drinking. Cause it's like, yeah, what, what are we meant to do? <laughs> Hello, anyone? Somebody tell me. Oh my God quarantine was heavy so you wrote in the article that you wrote for Elle about your year off drinking and you wrote about wanting to find out what it was that you were running from Mm -hmm. and I wanted to ask if you found that out in that year god I mean it sounds so cheesy and, and intense but I think that what most people are running from when they're drinking is themselves really um it it took a really long time for me to kind of accept the scars that my childhood had left on me and I've had such a chip on my shoulder for my for the best part of my adult life you know like a kind of why me type thing and um I think that you know, having this sort of like nihilistic, like attitude to things and being around loads of people who normalize drinking, it was easy to get swept up in, in that. But 
yeah, I think that exploring what I suffered and also sort of the the wreckage of that, because obviously it wasn't like when my parents got clean of illegal substances, they're now both on sort of, you know, methadone. And my father, sadly, uh, is an alcoholic now. Um, but it's not like everything's better. In fact, in many ways, I think for them, it's a much more difficult life to have to soberly look mm. back at, at the time that you've lost and the mistakes that you've made. And for us as a family to kind of be um, desperately and always trying to mend or build a dynamic that works for us when there's so much, you know, resentment and guilt and fear and love at the heart of it, but mm. it's confusing. So I think that drinking, it sadly, sadly, at least, at least in the moment, temporarily takes you out of that cycle of, of overthinking, doesn't it? And, and mm. sort of makes everything a bit less spiky feeling um in the long term obviously that catches up with you and it certainly did me but I you know I'm in therapy now which has been really useful and it's funny what you're talking about earlier in terms of like the the different sides of your brain I don't know if, have you ever done EMDR no but I'm quite interested to do that after um since reading this book because yeah so of, like you can do so much with talking and it's going and then that's kind of stuff's going into the body supposedly yeah it's like I think it's called bilateral stimulation but ultimately it's yeah it's sort of activating the left and right sides of your brain while you try and process trauma um but you know I've, I've read so much about it and it really helps people who struggle with addiction you know people victims of trauma and I'm I don't know I think that it's Sorry, go on. I'm trailing off. No, no. I was actually, I'm so interested to ask because you've done a lot of work and also because you are, I think, from what I can tell, you know, very in touch with who you are and why you may be the way you are, Mm -hmm. as in whatever that means, like things that you've maybe used as coping mechanisms. I'd love to know, looking back on yourself, how do you think that that experience with your parents and that chaos manifested itself for you? And does any of that still live in you now? If that makes sense. Like, it's really hard, I think, whilst you're doing something to see what you're doing, if that makes sense. Yeah. But then always looking back, it's like, oh my gosh, now I can see that I was, for example, with grief, like, oh my God, I was really grieving right then. And I just didn't know because I was in it. But are yeah. there things or coping mechanisms or personality traits that you're like, oh, that could maybe be because of this? I mean, 100%. I can't, <laughs> I can't say yes enough. I mean, I think that I like, be it fucking alcohol, sex, love, fantasy. I think that my tendency to self-medicate is as a result of my upbringing and that I think is completely 
undeniable. That's that's a fact now in my head. And that's taken a long time to realize. You know, I think that jumping from very intense relationship to very intense relationship to like drugs binge to whatever, like it, it, it took people around me being like, Billy, you should probably go to a Sex and Love Addicts Anonymous meeting and Billy, you should probably like do dry <laughs> January and dry February, March, whatever. It takes a while, but I think that, um, and in answer to your second question, does it still live with you? I, I don't think it will ever not live with me. I think that, you know, and your case too, it, it, it changes the sort of fabric of, of who you are and how you react to everything. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think it's it's an ongoing process. I feel much, much more balanced and, and well-equipped now to to deal with that and to deal with the reality of it and I think that one thing I regret when I look back is not sort of seeking help sooner and I think that especially in the UK I was so cynical and so like cringed out by the idea of counseling and therapy you know like same it's I the only reason so when I referred my mother when I staged this intervention on how I took her to this recovery center and she had to go in and be you know get all these blood tests and I was in the waiting room and as the person who referred her they recommended that I did a session with this with a counselor and I wasn't a minor at that time I think I was like you know I'd left home I was 20 maybe 21 and they were like we really you know it, ordinarily it would be compulsory if you're in the same household for you to do a session with this counsellor. And I was very like, I'm not the heroin addict. Why do I need to see a counsellor? You know, really sort of like totally shutting out the ramifications of what had happened and being like, I'm fine. I've got my shit together. Thank you very much. Mm-hmm. And I remember my first session with this woman because I did it in the end. And I was such a bitch to her like literally sort of like arms folded, like barely making eye contact, grumpy, sod, being like, I'm, you know, what do you, therapize this, you know? Like I, I really, really didn't believe in it. And then, you know, a couple of sessions in, I was like, I love this woman. I'm obsessed with her and going to this, you know, very depressing little like, drug rehabilitation center to go to their like in-house counseling service is the highlight of my week and I've since sort of been much more active in in therapy and much more open to it and so much less judgmental so I would say that to anyone listening to this who's like a cynical twat like I (laughs) was and am like just do it just like get over yourself and do it I mean don't you agree oh I could not agree more I could not agree more for me as well I mean it changed it completely changed my relationship to myself and to all these thoughts that I thought that I was really isolated in and actually slightly bonkers to think or it just it it you know I think again speaking of the whole um EDMR or whatever it's called EMDR yeah EMDR you know speaking gets you so far for sure potentially depending on what you're talking about and what the problem is but it's such a wonderful liberating first step if you can take that step and it can be so I mean it can be totally transformative it definitely transformed 
me and my life and how I felt about myself, et cetera, et cetera. I don't know how sort of vague this is, this question, but I'd love to know because you have, because obviously this podcast is called Daddy Issues, but you very much also had a mother with addiction issues. So, you know, we've spoken Mm -hmm. about both parents here. I'd love to know if you think there is a difference and what that difference may be between a mother who's an addict and then a father who's an addict and potentially what you lack from each because of it, because of that Mm. absence that they have from themselves, what absence does that then give you from them as a father and a mother? Yeah, that's such an interesting question because I think that just societally, like, there are such different expectations from a mother-daughter relationship and a father-daughter relationship, aren't there? And I think that, you know, there's an expectation, I think, for mothers and daughters to be very close. Mm. And I have friends who are my age and older who still sort of will call their mum if they're in crisis or if they have trouble with a boy or you know mm. generally they'll kind of have their mum as a go-to and my mother and I have never really had that relationship even when we're closer like I don't think that you know it I I, I wasn't confiding in her necessarily if that makes sense I wasn't confiding in either of my parents because I it wasn't like they could really help much, you know? And I think, like I said earlier, in many ways that elevated the relationship to a place that felt more adult and more like friends often than that they were caregivers. So I could talk to them about a book or a film or some music or an experience and you know, they obviously would give these amazing anecdotes and they're brilliant storytellers and very charismatic. But would I call them up and say, I need help with this work question? No, because they're not working. Would I call them up and ask for money? No, because they can't give it to me. And so my relationship with both of them is, it doesn't fit the sort of like norms that we've been fed. Um, But I think that... um, you know, there, there are these ideas as well of uh, a father kind of being the protector, um, someone who will shield their daughter from, I don't know, shitty partners and shitty situations and step in to save the day. And my father physically can't be that. I mean, I have thought about it often, especially because I live here now, being based in L.A., there's such a disconnect from them and my life here that if I were to get into an accident tomorrow, not only would they not be able to get on a plane here, um, they wouldn't know who to call. Hmm. They don't, there's, you know, they, they don't know who my friends are here. They don't have anyone's phone number. Um, and there is that there's a, there's a wall between them and I. And so I don't know in terms of like the mother, father, being able to distinguish between it but I think just like as a whole as a family like I you know I'm floating off in a different space and we don't have a huge awareness of what 
one another's day-to-day life is like and that's quite strange and what's your relationship like with them now I mean it's it's strained you know it's difficult and when you know my, my father's alcohol problem I think in many ways is scarier to me than his heroin addiction because alcohol just changes you it it, Mm. I mean at least with him it's a very much a kind of like Jekyll and Hyde situation and so I just don't really hear from him you know And, and that's the that's the most devastating thing because there have been so many years of my life where like I would if I didn't hear from him I'd literally be calling around hospitals to see if he'd wound up there and sadly for me that reaction was very often positively reinforced because I would call up and he had wound up in hospital and there had been an accident, you know? And I spent years of my life being like, he's going to OD and die and something's going to happen. And now I, I, I worry less about that, but he's still not there, you know? And, and I say to him all the time, you know, I'd love to hear from you more often. And, you know, maybe we can do a weekly call or whatever, but it's, it's, it's difficult. And, and my dad isn't a very happy person generally. Um, and I think that, as you know, depression is so isolating. Mm-hmm. So I think that, you know, a life that's been consumed by addiction also involves sort of retreating from friends and family and yourself and sadly it's kind of meant that my dad has retreated from me and that's had like a big impact on my relationship with my mother too because I think that often I will vocalize or express my upset with that and she kind of feels like she's been unfairly kind of I don't know, like she, like she's being blamed for my father's mistakes in a way, you know, because mm-hmm. to me they're this unit. And sometimes I'll be like, well, why, why doesn't dad contact me? Or how is she? How is he? You're, you know, you're there next to him. You're a few meters away from him. But she obviously can't control whether or not he wants to message me or call me, which he just doesn't. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there's also, you know, just like a generational thing where like they – they don't text as much as we do. My parents don't have social media or anything like that. So in terms of keeping up when I live across an ocean, it's it's difficult to kind of maintain that relationship. Mm-hmm. So my final two questions. So if your mum was listening to this episode right now, what would you want to say to her? God, I hope, number one, that you're not mum listening to this. <laughs> Um, I think I would say oh god I don't know I mean I I, I'm sort of torn between wanting to say that I don't blame her for certain things and then in my head I'm saying yeah you do it's like yes you do blame her for certain things don't be disingenuous just to sound really like nice at the end of the podcast no, I think I think I I just want I want desperately for my parents to be happy. And so I think that I 
think that that's the only way that our relationship will really improve as a family is if is if they kind of work on themselves so I think that if I were to speak directly to my mother I would just kind of for one lend her my sympathy in terms of the fact that she's having to live with someone who's got a very heartbreaking alcohol problem I can't imagine what it's like to sit and watch my dad drink the way that he is and drink himself to I'm sure a plethora of health problems and relationship issues and aggression and um I'm sure that's much more difficult than she lets on so I would you know lend my sympathies with that I think for one and if your dad was listening to this episode right now, what would you want to say to him? What would I want to say to him? Dad. Oh, God. I don't know. That's so heavy. What do I want to say to my dad? <laughs> I know. Sorry. Fuck knows. I mean, I, I think just like... I think what I'd like, I mean, I'm, I'm not my most articulate today, unfortunately, but like, I think that one thing that I've never managed to sort of communicate with my father, and this isn't like, I forgive you for everything, but it's like, kind of like, I, I, un- I understand, I get it. I've seen drugs ravage enough lives now and tear enough other families and people apart that as much as there's there's anger and there's upset there it's kind of like I I get it I I see Mm -hmm. I see what's happened and I'm more accepting now than than I ever have been and I think that the older that I get the more sort of at peace with um everything that happened I am you know but I think again it's like I I desperately want my parents to be able to live out you know, the rest of their lives in the most comfortable way possible. And um, I think step step one of that is probably reducing your drinking, Dad. But, um, <laughs> yeah, we'll see. We'll see what happens with that. Oh, thank you so much, Billy. This was just incredible. Thank you. It was. I I feel like I've been like from my lack of sleep that I was like waffling on. Oh my god, you really were not waffling on. It was. Okay. Oh my god, no, it was incredible. I promise you. And you just said that you're like, oh, I'm not very articulate today. I was like, what? (laughs) (laughs) If you're not articulate today, this puts me to shame. Thank you so much for listening to my episode with Billy J.D. Porter. See, I told you you'd fall in love. I told you. I told you. No, I told you that she was just one of the most articulate people I've ever had the privilege to have interviewed. And thank you, Billy, for coming on and just being so honest and open and yourself, which is something that I believe I said in the episode I hugely valued and felt that she always does throughout her work and this was absolutely no exception 
I, yeah, I'm going to just stop talking now and let you get on with your day or night. But I just thank you, Billy, for coming on. It was incredible. And as I said to you at the end of our last episode, I just think you're such an inspiration. And I know it's a bit cringe when someone goes a bit gushy, but that is how I feel. So thank you so much, everyone, for listening. And thank you so much, Billy. And have a wonderful rest of your day or night. And before I leave, just a gentle reminder to go on this episode's show notes in finding the link that will lead you to get your first box of free only goodness, not only to change your relationship to your monthly cycle for the better, but also to make your mark in changing this planet for the better. Thank you so much for listening to this episode on Daddy Issues Podcast. If you've been affected by anything at all in the episode, in the show notes, you will see a number of websites whereby you can seek support on various different platforms, including ex-podcast guest and psychotherapist Julia Samuel's website, Black Minds Matter, Calm and Grief Untangled. Warren Borg at Wargy Productions for helping me master and compress all my episodes so they sound that much better. Thank you so much for listening. Please do feel free to get in touch. I love hearing from you. Our email is on the show notes. And please do follow us on Instagram at the Daddy Issues Podcast. Have a lovely rest of your day or night.